I'm Professor Shane Greenstein, and you're listening to the Harvard Business School Digital Initiative Seminar, a premier seminar series that hosts thinkers and scholars who are pushing forward research on the digital transformation of the economy by conducting and connecting with cutting-edge leaders, equipping leaders, and building community, the Digital Initiative seeks not just to study, but also to shape digital transformation. To learn more, check out digital.hbs.edu. It's a great pleasure to, to have Hema from the University of Washington, I, I, whose last name I will not pronounce appropriately, <laughs> and so, uh, so I'll let her pronounce it for you. Um, and uh, as normal, we, it's uh, good practice for us to go around the room and introduce ourselves and our units. I'm Shane Greenstein, I'm from the Tom Unit and Digital Initiative. I am Eva Ascarta, I'm from the Marketing Unit. Hi, I'm Pomla, I'm also from the Marketing Unit. My name is Michael, I'm from the Marketing Unit, Top Level 2. Ayala is Marketing Unit. Navi is Marketing Unit. Natalia is Strategy Unit. Dave Homo from the Digital Initiative. Diane, um, Computer Scientist, alumna of MIT and Harvard. Uh, Fenju from the top unit. Hang Yu and I. Ben Schiller Brandeis. Hang Yu Strategy. Chris Stanton, Entrepreneurial Management. Julia Arnus Tom. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I've never had such an interdisciplinary audience, so like, it's fun to um, come here and talk to you guys. And thank you, Shane, for the invitation. And uh, today what I'm going to be talking about is targeting and uh, privacy in mobile advertising. And this is actually joint work with my student, Omed Rafian, um, who is basically all the driving force behind this project and really, really very good. Uh, makes me feel bad because I was such a bad student to my advices. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, there's not much karma in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so uh, before I start this talk, let me, uh, you know, get into the problems. Let me give you a little bit of background uh, about, you know, where this paper kind of comes in. So as we all know, mobile adoption and usage has uh, grown quite a bit in the last few years. Uh, there are uh, 2 billion smartphone users worldwide, and uh, to put it in context, there are 7 billion people worldwide. Uh, and the average user actually spends about 3.3 hours a day on phones. And the bulk of this usage is actually coming not through uh, you know, browsers, mobile browsers, but through apps. And, um, and, and now, actually, the internet usage through uh, smartphones exceeds uh, internet usage through desktops. Uh, so what, of course, you know, where the people are or the eyeballs are, that's where advertisers want to be. So all this has also seen this concurrent rise in mobile advertising dollars. And now it's actually the largest uh, share of, it constitutes the largest share of digital ad spend. Uh, and, you know, greater than TV and so on. So, um, and this growth, this pretty rapid growth in mobile advertising uh, is mostly attributed to an ad format, which is kind of somewhat unique to um, mobile um, devices. And that is called in-app advertising. So what's in-app, I have an example here because at some point in time I used to be addicted to Angry Birds. Thankfully, no more. Uh, so this is the Angry Birds app, as you can see when you're playing this game. You might see a little ad, this little banner ad in the bottom. So that's really the uh, you know, in-app ad that I'm talking about. And there are two reasons these ads have kind of become popular. The first is that it's a common app monetization strategy. So uh, let's say I wrote a little app. I want to make a bit of money. You know, you could sell it. Um, you know, and that's one monetization strategy. But the more common monetization strategy is to show ads through this app, and then you know, depending on the pricing model, you make some money. 
And the second reason these ads have become popular, this form of advertising has become popular, is that they actually offer very excellent user tracking and targeting properties. So uh, what some of you might know or uh, you know, may not know, actually I find that most people in the audience usually don't know, is that all our um, devices, uh, mobile devices have a device ID and ad networks, which are essentially platforms, have uh, full access to this device ID and they are able to track your device ID and track which apps you use, which ads got shown and, you know, and so they can in some ways stitch together uh, user data across sessions, apps, and even ads, unless you go and actively reset this ID. Uh, uh, so, you know, so in some ways, I have very persistent tracking information, which is not even available in desktop browsers. So it gives you this, like, from advertisers' perspective or the ad network's perspective, it gives us, like, a uh, huge ability to engage in user tracking and, you know, do behavioral targeting. Uh, so in, in some ways, that has been good. So all these good tracking techniques uh, are good from, you know, and I'm using the word good more in the sense of they, are, they have a good ability to track them. I'm not making a normative statement on whether it's good or bad. Uh, have allowed advertisers and ad networks, you know, maybe they can do improved behavioral targeting, which of course, you know, you know, if we know that it would lead to improved efficiency in the marketplace. We can make these better matches now. Um, however, on one, so that's on one hand, but on the other hand, it has also let all these privacy concerns among users on, you know, uh, this ability to stitch together information across apps, time, and ads. And this is part of this broader debate in, over consumer tracking and privacy. So, of course, advertisers, on one hand, want fewer protections, more ability to target. Consumers want higher uh, privacy and, you know, limits on targeting. And there are, you know, people getting into this debate, like regulators, governments, and so on, like GDPR regulation, which kicked in about last year. You know, they want to kind of regulate this behavioral tar uh, you know, um, targeting. And of course, the firms and the ad industry also wants to not have regulation, but they, the, one of the claims they make is that they can do self-regulation. Uh, and this question of like whether they can or they have incentives to engage in self-regulation in some ways relates to this, then you come to the broader question about this like revenue, like from a theoretical perspective, right? Like this question is about revenue and efficiency trade-off. So if you look at the, uh, because you know, all these platforms are using auctions fundamentally, right? And um, what, what we know in some ways from the auctions literature is that higher efficiency does not necessarily lead to higher revenues for these ad networks. So when you have Fact, and I'll get into this in greater detail later, but the high level idea is that when you have fractal distributions of valuations and um, you have thin markets, so as I target more and more, there is one person who really, really wants you and is willing to pay a high price, but the next person's willingness to pay for the same impression is really low, then all this, so any contracting mechanism, an efficient contracting mechanism is going to transfer the rent to the advertiser rather than the ad network, right? So this was kind of the conjecture that Levin and Melgram had. Uh, so they don't prove it, but they conjecture that, especially in online advertising markets, when you, you engage in excessive targeting or narrow targeting, as they call it, it can create thin markets and hurt platform revenues. So, uh, you know, but while this has been kind of discussed in the theory literature, there's limited empirical evidence that too much targeting can actually uh, hurt platform revenues. And, uh, you know, so, Basically, you, you want to think about what's the optimal level of targeting from the platform, and if that is consistent with some of the user's preferences on privacy, then maybe, at least in principle, we can think about self-regulation as a possibility, yes. Okay, so let me make sure I 
catch up here. So the old view used to be the problem was in the presence of very broad targeting, mm -hmm. like uh, used to be intelligent advertising. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. You, uh, there was an unending benefit to yes. further division yes, yes, yes. and targeting along dimensions mm -hmm. of the audience. Yeah. And the thought was that when we went into online, the being able to distinguish between ages and genders and even locations yeah, and, and like even history of and life. history and so on. And there was no end to the benefit of that. And the point is, the Levin and Milgram point is, there is an end to the benefit yes. of that because if you get it down to one or two people, yes. you've now, right, the intuition yes. is, yes, you now, you, you, there's only one advertiser who really wants that. Yeah, it, so you're basically, the more targeting you do, the uh, one intuition is that you're increasing the heterogeneity in the how yeah. much people value this impression. And as this heterogeneity increases, you're going to create these large gaps. Yes. So there is, and the gap is basically the informational rank. You're creating value, but you're transferring this value to advertisers. To advertisers, because they're just going to be one person who wants, yes, one exactly. advertiser and, who wants Yeah, that, and they're and, giving the paying, the willingness to pay off the next gap. would be much lower. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I, can, I see. Yeah, so okay. that was uh, so that was kind of a conjecture, but you know it's kind of been hard to prove empirically. So no one has looked at it because a like you know you need data from these platforms and you need to kind of show that you know what is the level of targeting where it actually breaks down, right? Because yeah. if I don't build a strong enough targeting model, it's never going to mm -hmm. kind of happen. Um, so that's kind of uh, so, and you can see that in some ways it directly it looks like this is one is a theoretical issue and the other is like a substantive issue on privacy, but they're like very closely interlinked. And uh, so that's kind of what the paper is going to be about, yes. So, um, so there might be uh, different reasons consumers hate or mm -hmm. react backly to like tracking. Partly maybe like just like innate aversion to being tracked. Or is like current targeting is just really dumb because I already like purchased something <laughs> And all you do is to retarget me again. Exactly. So in that sense, there's this kind of temporal trade-off in the sense that, like in the future, like in ten years' time, the targeting may be more sophisticated and smarter. And in some sense, but you, have, you can't get there without the dumb faces. So you're talking about like the accuracy of a targeting model. So that's it's, uh, this is saying that okay, even if I improved the accuracy and I made it better, it's not clear my revenues would improve. Is that clear? So it's possible that I have a dumb targeting model and that doesn't bring me enough revenues. That's understandable. But even if I improve the revenue, yeah. And, and I won't be, uh, you will see that I, wa I won't say anything about consumer welfare here because I'm not going to have any like regimes, targeting regimes, which will change and I'm not going to build a model of consumers. I mean, we will be modeling them to the extent that we can, their behavior, I I'll get to it in a moment, but I won't say much about consumer welfare because I don't have the variables to make that statement. Yeah, I just raise another question. It could be an offsetting effect if people like well-targeted ads, which Calvarian has argued they do. Um, then um, he works for Google. Yeah, oh. <laughs> I totally believe that statement. It might be true if you give me an ad for something that I actually yes. want, and, that, and I learn about it that way, I could actually enjoy it. And so, 
Yeah. So this oh. comes to the question of, and we'll get to it hopefully in time, this question of when I think about contrafactual targeting strategies, right? So I'm going to be extrapolating from the randomization I have in the data. I think what the question that you're kind of getting at is that the, if people react adversely to more targeting or positively to more targeting, to what extent can we extrapolate from this targeting regime, uh, like where it's more, there is some randomization? And the if it... So think of this as a short-run counterfactual. Okay. Uh, okay. So uh, so what's the research agenda? So basically, the, you can think about what we're going to do in this. Oh, sorry, Navi, go ahead. Uh, the, just to, I just want to make sure I understand the context correctly. So that assumes there is no reservation price. Good question. So there is. Uh, so it does not. Um, so this is with reserve <laughs> prices. Of course, if you opti uh, impose optimal reserve price, like the Myersonian approach, you can extract uh, everything. Uh, there are two things which kind of stop you from doing it practically. One is that it has to satisfy the val certain valuation distributions, like the Myersonian distribution, to get the optimal reserve price. And most platforms. When you look at advertiser valuations, it does, including ours, doesn't satisfy that. The second is that here you will see that optimal reserve prices have to be impression specific, and no one has ever done that. Even Facebook doesn't do that. Like you know, uh, so you can I can impose some reserve price, like and improve things, but I will if I want to optimize at an impression level, that's going to be like a you're solving a different problem. Yeah. Okay. So what's the research agenda? So the first question is about targeting and efficiency. So you know, so first we want to think about how can ad networks develop targeting policies because that's what we want to then take to the counterfactuals, right? And then how can we evaluate the performance of these targeting policies, uh, both from a factual and a counterfactual perspective? And the second is you want to, this relates to the substantive question of how do you know what's the value of different pieces of information? So if I think about uh, you know the value of contextual information, like so where is this user? Like what kind of app is this person using? At what time of the day? I only knew that information, how much better can I target them simply from an efficiency perspective compared to knowing who they are, which means I kind of know their behavioral history, like what they clicked on and what they were shown in the past. And uh, so you know, we want to next quantify the value of different pieces of targeting information. And then finally, we want to look at this question of revenue efficiency trade-off and uh, characterize this empirical relationship between efficiency and platform revenues and think about what is the optimal level of targeting from the perspective of uh, the ad network and the advertisers, okay? So because there are two, diff two sets of players here. And, and then, you know, relate this to, uh, you know, the platform's incentives to preserve privacy. So that's kind of the high-level uh, goal. And uh, there are, you can think of this as kind of like, you know, each part is having like three main challenges. The first is that um, when you think about like developing targeting policies, like I should be showing this ad in this impression, uh, but when you look at the data, you're going to have one ad which was actually shown, right? Uh, so you actually need a framework which is able to get counterfactual click-through rate estimates uh, for, e for the ads which were not shown in the data, right? And uh, so to be able to develop any kind of efficient targeting policy, and I'll get to details of these, all of these in a few minutes. Um, the second is you kind of need a framework which is accurate enough, kind of, because if you don't have a highly accurate targeting framework, it's never going to kind of reach the boundary, right, which is kind of happening in the real world. Otherwise, you know, it's just going to, if uh, my targeting framework is I just randomly draw and tell you, like, you know, whether it's going to get a click or not, it's, it's not going to see the, you're not going to see those behaviors. Uh, so and also, just quick clarification. 
What do you mean by value of each piece of information? It's uh, like a, how much heterogeneity uh, you can explain or uh, value to the... Good question. So value here, I'm going to be like how much improvement in efficiency I can get. Uh, so how uh, do you nail that this uh, person yeah, like that? Yeah, this impression. And, and, the, and then the actual economic value will come in the next part. Okay. Yeah. So, so this so, one is most discovery, heterogeneating the... In the in yes, the, exactly. The yeah. To, situations. Yeah, to what extent can I explain the click with, uh, with behavioral information? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, you know, and then, but you know, so this is where, like, if I have to just do the first, this part, for example, the second part, I could just use like a machine learning framework, which will do this for me, right? But then you also want to be able, you kind of need an economic model of some kind of strategic interactions or auctions in this case, if you want to take these targeting policies and outcomes to some kind of revenue, right? You want to map, if you want to talk about incentives, you need theory at that point. Uh, so we're going to that, you know, you need some kind of economic model to be able to do this to kind of link these targeting policies to incentives. So that's kind of the three things that you know, we, want to, we need to take care of. And here is a broad approach that I'm going to take. Uh, so the first is we're going to propose a filtering procedure, uh, which is uh, going to take into account, uh, you know, we are going to try, think about identifying ads which have, an, think of it as like a non-zero propensity of being shown, because, you know, uh, in most, if uh, we don't have a deterministic auction, but, you know, most online advertising is deterministic. You can imagine that if it's, the auction is deterministic, uh, there's only one ad which has a non-zero probability of being shown. So uh, you, you actually need a setting where you know, there is some randomization, therefore. And then we're going to build a machine learning model of click-through prediction, which has ha sufficiently high predictive accuracy. And the, the core things which are going to happen here is like, you know, generate features which tell us about like, the behavioral information and the contextual information. And, uh, and then use those to measure the value of those different pieces of information. And then finally, we're going to uh, you know, build an economic model of auctions to determine uh, um, outcomes, market outcomes under different targeting policies. And then we will use that and you know, the results from here and combine it with this to characterize advertisers' utilities and the platforms, you know, the platforms' revenues and advertisers' surplus under different counterfactual targeting regimes. And, fig and you know, empirically look at this problem of like, you know, what is the optimal level of targeting? And one of the goals here is that, you know, in some ways, in some ways we want to be able to coherently combine some of these like predictive machine learning methods, which are very good for like, let's say, targeting, uh, but also like, economic models which are a little more prescriptive and tell us a little bit about, you know, how we can take them and say something about, you know, players' incentives. Okay, so now let me talk about the related literature briefly. Um, there are many, uh, obviously, streams of literature this relates to. At a high level, you can think about this as, uh, you know, there is a literature in computer science on click-through rate estimation and targeting and a bunch of uh, methodological papers on that, not just for targeting for anything, uh, you know, like prediction. Um, and uh, there the are a couple of ways in which this work differs from that because those are all for factual predictions. They never think about counterfactual predictions. And we'll see how one of the goals here is to see how you can bring in some methods from there and, and some ideas from the causal inference literature with like, you know, with, from the economics and then combine those two together. And there's also the paper, of course, relates to this very large literature on targeting and privacy. 
uh, and um, both on the effect of privacy regulation, on how users respond to different uh, targeting. You know, uh, I think Avi Golfab and Catherine Tucker have some nice papers in that area. And finally, it relates to this um, more of theoretical literature on revenue efficiency trade-off. Uh, since the um, uh, Levin and Milgram conjecture, there are a lot of theory papers which have looked at it and have shown that you know this can happen in theory. Uh, of course, you know they impose some functional form assumptions on the valuation distributions, and um, you will see that you know what we try to do here, we, we try not to impose any such thing. And there are also a couple of empirical papers which kind of briefly look at it, uh, like the Etienne Kepolo have a case study where they try to do this, and um, and Yao and Mela, you know, but but you know they show that actually more targeting helps partly because they don't have like a very highly accurate machine learning model, they never get to the uh, extremes. So that's kind of the broader uh, literature where this paper should be situated. Uh, now let me get to the setting and data. <coughs> Any questions? Okay. So okay. So the data actually comes from a major in-app platform of an Asian country. It's not China. Whenever I say a large Asian country, people mm -hmm. always assume it's China. I'm like, no, it's not China or India. So <laughs> okay. Uh, it's large, but not the largest. Okay, I, I would have said the largest. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a little bit dumb. Uh, and um, so this country doesn't have uh, actually um, Apple uh, products sold. Uh, so they only have uh, you know they only have Android um, you know devices. And this um, this in-app advertising platform at that point had about 85% market share um, uh, you know in the in the country. So it was like the largest in-app mobile in-app advertising platform. And uh, so it, you know, so it's a pretty representative for uh, of data for the country. And it was also interesting in the sense they only had one format of ad, which means that uh, now, of course, there are many different formats. So now, back then, it was this like small little banner ad you're showing, you're showing about it. And uh, they also had some interesting things, like they uh, they had very limited targeting, in the sense that uh, advertisers could only target on broad categories like app category, like sports, news, and so on, and or the province, like the state, and. Uh, connectivity type, Wi-Fi or data, and they also didn't engage in any kind of behavioral targeting. So the ad network itself was not doing any kind of, uh, you know, like extreme like targeting. And the most interesting thing about the platform is they use a uh, auction mechanism, which is not very common, uh, and it gives us a lot of power actually. Uh, um, it's called a quasi-proportional auction. So it's not a deterministic auction. In almost all auction settings, you see that the allocation is deterministic. So what these guys did was, so this uh, B is the bid, and Q is the quality score, which is not updated regularly. So it's not like, you know, er after every impression, your quality score is getting updated. It's some kind of a constant. And uh, so if you are, if you usually, in a deterministic auction, if you have the highest bid into the quality score, you win for sure, and then you pay you know, the next person's like expected price, right? Um, and then here, but what you don't always win, even if you have the highest bid into the quality score, you actually have a probability of winning. So as you can see, this basically creates a situation where even if I am in principle, so first of all, this queue is not very customized. So, you know, so the match is already kind of poor, but even conditional on that match, if I were going to be kind of going to still get it, it might go to the person with the you know, 
the lowest willingness to pay and the lowest match. So this is kind of like an experimental variation in some ways, right? Because this uh, conditional on a set of advertisers participating in the auction, uh, then who it gets allocated to is in some ways like randomized. Good question. Uh, that's a very good question. That was the first question we asked them. So there are two reasons. The first is that um, uh, they, uh, so first actually, um, the theoretical reason uh, is that actually um, these kind of auctions have been shown to have better, what is that, maximum properties. There are actually some the auction theory papers which show that uh, they perform well under the best worst case scenario. So there is there is that. But that was not totally their thinking. Their thinking was more along the lines of think about this, you're on the mobile device, right? And you're spending 10 minutes in this app. And uh, they thought that for the 10 minutes, if it's a deterministic auction running, I'm going to see the same ad for 10 minutes, uh, right? Because it was the quality score is not changing, your bid is not changing, I'm going to see the same ad. So they thought, you know, people are just going to get really annoyed. So they thought it would be a good idea to kind of add some randomization into the allocation mechanism. Um, so that was, that was kind of their thinking. But after we dug into this, we saw that also, uh, it has certain properties which might be useful. But, you know, that was not their thinking. Yes? It, it, it's almost as if they lacked confidence in their own ability to allocate. I don't think you would do this if you thought your own auctions were behaving well. <laughs> yeah. So, so you didn't think you could behave, right? That's right. So it's if you okay, so if you were updating these quality scores in real time, yeah. in real time, yeah. like after every impression, and we actually look at this in another paper where we look at variety and so on, then you could optimally allocate within the session. I update my quote, but they were not doing that. So, and they didn't want to show the 10 ads, exact 10 ads for you for 10 right. minutes. So this was like a proxy for them to kind of create some randomness. Yeah. yeah. So, so that was the idea. Um, uh, anyway, so, so this probabilistic allocation mechanism uh, obviously is not very good from revenue or efficiency or any perspective, but think of it as we're basically running like these quasi-experiments, which I have no problem with. <laughs> so, <laughs> So that was the background in the setting and the data. So uh, the data comes from about, uh, you know, it's a very large data set, but you know, the sample we are using for is about for a one month period. And uh, there are a bunch of variables in the data which are useful to know. First, we see the time stamp and the date um, and uh, the app ID, the app where the impression happened for each impression that is. Uh, the device ID, which is really your user ID, because no one, uh, it seems like from what we see, not many people really reset their device IDs. Uh, I worked on this for years now, I don't really reset it. So, um, you know, so it's quite persistent. There is ad ID, um, there's the targeting variables, like, you know, what kind of, uh, uh, what, which advertisers were kind of engaging in what types of targeting, and that's very minimal we see, and the location, and finally a click indicator, whether a click happened or not. So, um, so what we do is, uh, uh, you know, so we're going to, uh, you know, split the data and sample it because obviously it's very large to work with, and you also you'll see need to generate features based on the history. Uh, so um, the way to think about it is like in all kind of prediction kind of settings, you know, you have a cold start problem. I can't start predicting anything for people here because I don't have any history to make any features. So what we're going to do is take the uh, last three days of the data set. Uh, for you know the actual impressions for making the predictions, but we are going to use 
this what I call this global data to actually come up with the features for these, okay? And the sampling procedure is that we actually sample over uh, 700,000 users, and because I care about behavioral history, I'm going to sample users and take their entire history because I, want, I don't want gaps in someone's history. If you didn't care about behavioral, then you could actually sample over impressions and you know, they both would be the same, but here it's not. And uh, you know, after about 700,000, we didn't see any improvements in any model, but and over 700,000 users over these three, data set, uh, three days of training and test and validation gives us about 27 million impressions for training and testing. But we also use about 146 million impressions here to generate all these features which will be used for the prediction purpose. So this is the data splitting and sampling. Okay, so let's first start with this machine learning framework for targeting. And let me uh, start with uh, the problem definition here. So if you, uh, so I have this matrix because it's the easiest way for me to think about this. So think about an ad network or a platform which has, let's say, N impressions, right? So these are all impressions, and capital A ads. Ideally, what you're trying to predict is basically for each impression ad combination, what's the probability a click will happen, okay? So this YIA equals one if a click will happen. So we want to think of, the, we call this the match value matrix in some ways, right? So if I could know each element of this matrix, I can come up with any kind of targeting policy and predict what will be kind of the gains from that. So our goal is to accurately estimate the, you know, this match value matrix. And then once I have the match value matrix, then I can use different targeting policies that map impressions to ads. Okay, so what are the challenges here? The first is the counterfactual click-through rate estimation because it's important to recognize that when I look at what data I have to do this, for each row I have one, only one variable which was shown, maybe for impression one add two was shown and I see an outcome of zero or one for that and I don't see anything for the rest. Is that clear? So I want to be able to like, you know, so I can maybe learn to predict factual outcomes but if I want to be able to predict counterfactual outcomes, I have to be a little bit more careful. And I have all these like high dimensional categorical inputs, you'll see, you know, user, ad, app, and so on. And finally, I want this framework to be accurate enough. Yes. So is this app independent in the sense that... The ad network, you mean? Yeah, the ad network, yeah. So, the, so it doesn't matter what app you're using or how you've switched between them yes. or anything of that. No, because so they it, have visibility into all of that. that. Yeah, but it also, you also aren't going to, in some sense, model what the user's doing as yes. a way of understanding no. why ads get clicked. Yes. And you understand why that might be a problem, right? Because you can have someone who's going from a game to a map to yes. a... And, and those yeah. should get captured in the features. Yeah, well, you have some features. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that... so, uh, and we will use features for that. We will say, okay, how many times do you wear it? This app versus like what are the different apps you have seen in the past and what are the ads that you clicked in which apps. Okay. So, yeah. so well, you will... get some of it. Yeah. 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 Okay. So this, think of this as an outcome prediction problem at this point. Yeah. Yes. Right. So, so from the app's point of view, it's sort of, especially within games, if it's advertisement for other games, mm -hmm. that may be like competitively bad. So do like game apps have sort of um, rights <coughs> to reject certain kind of um, No, I don't think so. So the, um, oh. the, once the, once the, 
once you work with a platform you don't have any ability you don't you actually don't even own that space anymore they 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 allocate that yeah and the and the ads that you're tracking like it's the same ad being shown over this period of time this like- the same set of ads so that that uh, we work with about top 37 ads which constitute about 80 percent of the traffic and the rest are kind of pulled together in one bin so it's the same yeah and those advertisers aren't using like nudging techniques where like their ad gets progressively more uh, so the thing is, they can't do that level of targeting, right? Because they they give this one banner to the platform, and they actually because they are not the ones serving the ad, they can't. And they, it's no behavioral targeting. They don't know it's you, so they don't have any data that you might have been shown this ad. So they can't actually say you've seen this ad once. The second time you're going to see this different creative, because they don't. Neither the platform nor the ad network is using any kind of. Because that seems to be where targeting then does have go further yeah yeah so it's possible that the ad network could do much more to improve targeting but one thing you'll see is that one of the lessons here is that maybe what they even what they could do with this is maybe already too much yes No, the quality score is ad ad specific and kind of set like they change it every month or so. So it doesn't matter if I'm uh, that's a yeah. News app or exactly app, yeah. It's the same. Yes, it's exactly the same. So their quality score is very primitive. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I, I wouldn't tell them that. Maybe the uh, quality score is constant. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you, the advertisers can choose. The, so I can say, I don't want to be shown in news apps. But then it's, it's kind of global. Uh, yes, you're across. You're never shown in a news app. It's like, you set your, it's like equivalent to setting your bid to zero for a certain category or a certain like state. So the, think of it as bids, kind of. But we see that even they, even though they can like make different campaigns for, let's say, news apps versus a different like a sports app, a sports category, they don't change their bids. Like you know, yeah. I'm curious if the in your framework the apps have an option to specify whether they want to attract new users or like sort of scale up. So the apps don't have, you mean the advertisers, because apps already are the ones who are with the impressions. These are like people playing Angry Birds. I guess in, in, as an input into the, the design of the targeting campaigns. But the apps are not the ones targeting. I, are, do you mean ads? Yes, ads. Oh, the ads. No, so the ads don't have, uh, you know, no. So the, the platform doesn't necessarily allow the ads to say, this is a goal and like optimize on that for me. So the ads just have like literally the targeting variables I showed you. Okay, do I want to advertise in these categories or these areas or not? And what bid I want to pay? What bid I want to bid for these areas? So it's very basic. In some ways, that's why it's helpful in the sense it creates this very poor mapping between impressions and ads. So there's a lot of randomization which is being generated. Obviously, is it efficient for the, is it good for the platform now? Obviously not. Um, okay, so where were we? So, okay, so this, this is basically what we want to do. So let me talk briefly about uh, this counterfactual um, problem. Sorry, um, so counterfactual click-through rate estimation. 
So, uh, so when is the accurate? When can I be sure that this is the ad which was shown in my in this impression? I want to predict the click-through rate of a different ad if it had been shown in the impression, right? So, if I, if I want to do that, so and you know, so people think like if you use a machine learning model, you can just like do magic and anything would happen, but that's obviously <laughs> not true because there are some pretty strong assumptions, you know, which we are making. The idea is that if I have an impression, if I have an app, which is uh, never, you know. If I never showed this ad to, let's say, women, and I only showed this ad to men, right? No model, machine learning, or magic, or anything will ever help me predict how men would react if they see this ad, right? That's simply not there in the data. So intuitively, so that's intuitively. So like formally, what this means is that as long as the I'm the, the joint distribution of covariates and outcomes in my training data is the same as what's in my test data, I can predict. Right? I can make counterfactual predictions. Uh, and that's how it happened. And these estimates are accurate as long as the ad could have been shown, as long as there is some randomization. You know, I, my model sees instances where this could have happened in the data. If it doesn't see sufficient enough instances, then I'm never going to be able to do it. So what is the requirement? You need some randomization. And there's a randomization here coming from intuitively. Uh, you know, there is very little targeting which is happening, right? And specifically, there is no tar behavioral targeting, which means ads that end up being shown in a broad set of apps, users, and settings. And of course, the probabilistic allocation rule naturally creates randomization within the set of ads. And let me show you uh, uh, kind of some evidence from the data, because you know, I could say that, oh, it's probabilistic, but it could be like 99% it gets allocated to one, and 1% it gets to allocated to another. So let me just show you from an impression, from, you know, across our test data. So this one is uh, all the expo exposure number, I mean like within a session impression number. Like, you know, so this person has been around for like six impressions within a app, not this person, this like set of people. And you can see that the median, a number of unique ads that they have seen is about, you know, three to four, right? So there is a lot of, what that means is that over 50% of the people are seeing four, more than four, four or more ad, unique ads within like five impressions, right? Which means that there is a lot of uh, randomization being created and we see kind of the same pattern. So this probabilistic allocation rule is creating a lot of exogenous variation in some ways. Yeah? It's gotta be something also about the combinatorics don't kill you. So it's got, right, there's got to be some minimal requirement here. The pool of set of ads that are available can't be too big. And the combinations of man, age, education, uh, location, whatever it is you're conditioning on, yes. can't be too big yeah. so that you don't have empty cells. So, yes. Right? That has to be so, something okay. like that. So it, it has to be what, uh, so that's a good question. So what, um, let me maybe just tell you what our strategy is. So that's yeah. kind of, okay, so we call this a, a filtering procedure which means that for every impression, we want to identify, uh, so impression already takes into account things like the user, the province, okay. and everything, right? We want to identify the set of ads for which our counterfactual estimates would be accurate, right? Are consistent, yes. okay. I won't say accurate. Accurate also means that, like, you know, other things, but you know, are consistent, right? So, so, so we want to identify the availability of an ad for an impression. And that can happen through two things. Uh, of course, there's the probabilistic, which creates the variation, but what else? the targeting decision. Maybe certain ads are never going to be shown 
in this app so you you cannot credit for them at this time of the day they never there or the other thing which often happens is campaign availability like you know uh, this ad like you know they they you know their budget's always exhausted by 9 p.m and they never show like you know uh, so things like that so we actually have data on this so it's kind of a data driven approach we know for what types of users and which ads are available for this each impression it's like literally an impression level filtering matrix and then we're going to filter out ads uh, by filtering out as in for each impression. We can still predict and we do that, but when we come to the analysis, we won't use it in the like final analysis because I can't be sure about their accuracy. So, uh, so we're going to basically, so this is kind of this intuition of like non-zero propensity score, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. so that's, that's, that's basically what it is. So and we, we are going to then, you know, come up with like this, what we call this filtered sample of ads for each impression. And that could vary from impression to impression. It's important to kind of keep in mind. So think about this as the way we actually do this in the paper is if you go to this, you can, you, we make exactly a similar matrix like this with zeros and ones. And the ones are the ads for which counterfactuals are valid, zeros are the ads for which, and then you can do like a dot product, yes. yes I'm just curious about which ads, in terms of the frequency of use, um, like when you're, like I'm using an app, and I notice that when I use something I really like, they actually start using so in more ads, and it makes me want to like uninstall it. <laughs> it's like a negative, like, meaning like they have a captive audience, but then they make it a negative thing, so I'm just wondering if they determine by um, usage, the that seems like an app related question on like actually if I show more ads like am I just going to like disappear from the app so here you can see that an ad is always going to be shown so I yeah. can't really say much about more versus less ads uh, but if the same ad is being shown is that your question well but a little bit of both so many times it's the same ad but oftentimes it may be different ads so they're doing a good job mm -hmm. there but it's just frequency, they uh, more money, so they can just do more ad impressions? That's a good question. Unfortunately, it's not a question I can answer. Oh, okay. Because, uh, <laughs> because in my case, it's all, you know, there is an ad, the frequency and the time of the ad being shown is constant through the data. If I could have variation in, oh, there are 15 second slots, then you go for a minute without showing an ad, then that would get to that question. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so okay, so again, once you do the filtered sample, one question you might wonder is, okay, like, is there like so much still targeting going on in the system and like other things like campaign, you know, availability? How much, how many ads end up like competing in this, like, like in this auction? So I just wanted to show you like the filtered sample and how many. Ads. You can see that pretty much all uh, impressions have at least like about like ten uh, ads competing, and the median impression has about like. You know, at least like, what what would that number be like? Twelve. Sure. Yeah, uh, about twelve ads. So you know, there is sufficient out of the thirty-seven ads that we have, right? So at least ten to twelve ads, even in most cases, and there are of course some which have like way more um, uh, impressions. You know, way more ads competing for them. So so we can actually, when we go to the counterfactual, there is a sufficient number of competition still. Like we can make some statements. Question about the availability of an ad for an impression. So at the end of the day, the impression for you is going to be a bunch of features. Uh, impression is just an, imp yeah. So impression, um, I was going to have it in the next slide. I thought you people were leaving by one. I just took it out <laughs> like a minute back. <laughs> like, sorry. Sorry, it was literally in the next slide. Um, 
um i can still it's put okay, it back okay. uh, it's okay maybe i'll tell you when we meet okay. <laughs> this is so funny uh, um okay now i can't make it maybe you're going to tell you uh, let me see i don't know why it became so tiny in this corner Oh my god, I did. Okay, I did put it back. So, okay. So that comes that relates to the feature generation framework, kind of like how you generate. So, so you know, so in that, now we're basically next in the prediction problem. So, we have all these like so each impression as you are saying is categorized by, you know, what like the user creating the impression. So, what do we have as like inputs, right? The app where the impression happens, the ad which was shown, and the time of the day. We kind of put it in 24 hour buckets. And we want to generate, uh, so, uh, so these, the, the campaign, avail the, so this is what we are going to use. Um, so if someone chooses not to target on an app, they're going to go out. So if a user is in a certain location, which they're not targeting on that, for that impression, that ad is not going to be available. So then your prediction is going to be by user app time, which ad should I show? And ad. Yeah, and ad. And the ad is the... Uh, yeah, we will first predict variable. using the ad, and then we will come up with a targeting policy. Uh, let me get to that in a moment. Uh, so, so now think of this as just like a factual prediction system, right? Because what we predict in factual, we can take it to those counterfactual ads. So the way to think about this, like, of course, these are all very high dimensional. Like, you know, there are like millions of users, millions of ads. So you want to kind of like come up with some sensible way to contract this so that it's there's information in there. So this is something I have done in one of my previous papers, which is come up with like a function-based feature generation framework. And that's kind of what we are going to do here. And uh, the idea is that for each impression, I, you can use the user app and time and add as input. And instead of just using these like high-level like uh, combinatorics, you can come up with functions, which you know compress this information. And the idea is, so for example, uh, if you have an impressions function, which will take these as inputs and tell you for user I, for a given app, for a given time of the day, how many, you know, how many times have they seen this ad in app? And you can, you know, and then you can like do it at any level. So this impressions function, I think there are like actually about 30 of them at like different inputs. I can, if I choose not to specify a user, it's over all users maybe, right? So that's kind of the intuition. So let me, uh, uh, tell you how we actually do this. So the way to think about this is that, in, like the same function, how many impressions a you you know a user or a, you know uh, that the impressions function, for example, can capture different types of information, which is contextual, behavioral, or ad-related. So the contextual information that, for example, we're trying to capture is which app are you in, gaming app, or like maybe a click, your behavior might be different, right? Your likelihood of clicking. So that's kind of what you are intuitively trying to capture. Or time of the day at like work versus like leisure, or and the behavioral, like you know, what if I have, if the, if the feature has information over your past history, then it's telling me something about your past behavior, which might help me predict what you will do now, right? So just like these were like telling me something at the global level about what people at 10 p.m., are they more likely to click in this app versus in, you know, people at 10 a.m. in a different app. And then finally, we also, many, many of these features could also be at the ad level, uh, which means that if I show you an ad, if I show you, let's say, a sports ad in a sports app, maybe you are more likely to click, or people who have clicked on these type of ads are more likely to click on. You know, so essentially, we are trying to capture all this information using functions, uh, which are going to map uh, all these user level, app level, ad level, time level information 
into one variable. And we have, and we also do it over time. So some of these are aggregated over long term, over one month, some over just one week, and some within the session. So if you already clicked on something in the session, maybe your behavior is different. So we have about um, 160 features um, using this. And this is actually kind of the part where you actually are trying to extract all this information. This is where much of the work on the machine learning part happens. And you can see that the features, these are overlapping, which means there could be features which are both contextual and behavioral, features which are contextual, behavioral, are specific, you know, have all types of information. So, so this is basically, you know, the set of features we are going to use. And think of this as the x variables you will give into some kind of prediction algorithm. Did you try, uh, did you do any analysis of whether the number of features matters? 160 seems small to me, but maybe based on your data, that's good. Yeah, so this is uh, something also I've done in a previous paper. So this set of, we have, so you can actually show that the gain, information gain, uh, you can do this, and these are called these wrapper models, where you like throw one in, like how do you build a model? And you can actually show that the information gain compared to like the runtime of the algorithm basically tapers off even with much less features. Yeah, good question. Um, uh, you, very few times I get to say I have done this. Usually it's like I hope someone else will do it. <laughs> uh, okay, so now think of these as X variables you have for some prediction. So we, uh, we, before you go use any algorithm, you, have, you need an objective. What are you trying to maximize? So what we think, think of this here as a log loss, which is our objective function. And, um, and the, uh, and this is the most commonly used log loss because you know we have a binary outcome variable here. And we are going to use a, a validation data to tune a bunch of hyperparameters. And the learning algorithm that we are going to use is called XGBoost. It was uh, interestingly actually developed at UW uh, by our computer science uh, people. And uh, it's a fast and scalable version of uh, boosted regression trees. And if you go to pretty much any Kaggle competition, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a winning algorithm in most of them or in one of the ensembles. And you know, of course, no one ever believes me when I say this is the right thing to do, because the, and then the reviewers made us do lots of checks to see, oh, why not use a random forest? Or why not use something else? No, none of them work as well. Um, uh, so, you know, so it's a very, very, if you are ever in a prediction task where you're thinking of tabular data, not like pictures or text, uh, this is the best algorithm to use. Is it better to use more than one? Ensemble. Yeah. Uh, this is very powerful. It doesn't give much. You don't get much over. Think about it as it's in some areas of the data space. Maybe one model works better than others. That's the whole idea behind ensemble learning. But this generally works so well and scales so well also that even if you were to gain a small amount, uh, the scalability of those other models is very poor. Uh, okay, so now we want to evaluate this model. Okay, so there are two ways to evaluate this model. The first is um, RIG, which is um, what I call relative information gain. Uh, and the idea is that, so in so think about this. This is a model where clicks happen very rarely, less than 1%. Even if I tell you, like, naively, a click never happens, right, I'm mostly right. Uh, so you want to kind of have uh, information. You want to see how much better you can do than like, you know, like a knife prediction. Uh, so, uh, uh, so that's why relative information gain is very commonly used. And the idea is that you, this is the average prediction for the data compared to now, if you use your model to predict, how much better can you do? 
And, um, and the, in the first model evaluation, we are going to actually think of this as factual model evaluation. So the red elements here, I think about, think of these as like the ads which were actually shown in the data on a test data, right? And how well can I predict for ads which were actually shown in the data? And RIG in some ways um, allows us to, uh, and this RIG has other good properties like based on log loss, which was our, you know, uh, the function we use for optimization and so on. So I can evaluate the model in this way. Uh, the second way I can evaluate the model is to look at the potential improvement and click-through rate. And, uh, and, the, uh, and this is based on this uh, targeting policy, right? So let's say that this was the ad which was actually shown in the data, right? And now suppose that I come up with an efficient targeting policy. By efficiency, I mean I allocate the ad to the, uh, uh, sorry, the impression, uh, no. I allocate the ad which has the highest click-through rate for this impression to it. Okay, so I'm going to maximize the uh, clicks, right? And so this was not seen in my data, so this is kind of like a counterfactual evaluation, okay? So you can see what's the improvement in click-through rate that you would see if you changed your allocation policy, okay? So this is two separate ways to evaluate it. So you're sort of, if I understand correctly, you're sort of mixing up two things. So one is sort of better targeting, but if you're suggesting that they show that one, you're also assuming they get rid of this ra rather naive, mm -hmm. um, random uh, yes. a lot. So yeah. Can you compare it to what if they just took the one with the highest probability according to their algorithm and see how well that did if they allotted that with certain... So they don't have an algorithm now, right? They're just doing a random algorithm, randomization. You, you, oh, you don't have the probability? So I do have the probability. That's the baseline. Okay. That's the baseline. The, the, this the is the multiplied by the quality score. The probability of being shown. Because they actually showed one, but that was a random draw. What if they showed it to whichever one had the highest quality score? Oh, yeah, I could easily. Yeah, we haven't done that. That's easily doable. We can show it to the bid into the quality score. So that are, might get you a large part of the way there. This randomization could just be. Could just really be so bad. bad. Okay, that's yeah. a good idea. So we could do that. That's a good point. Yes. So you don't do any conditioning on uh, previous click through, right? So, so in other words, if for the you, user? Yeah, for the user. So if you, because this approach, every click is independent of every other click. No. Click through is not. So, 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 so in a session, if a user clicks through an ad, you would think the probability of them clicking through on the next ad is low, or you might think it's very high. Or, so if you update you the features in a real time. No, but you'd want a serial correlation of behavior. That's the issue. So if you, as long as it's captured in the data, right? Like in your training data, if you had people who clicked on an ad once and you see whether what's the likelihood they're going to click on the ad next, to that extent, you will be able to predict also in a test setting to what extent people have already clicked once, people have already clicked twice, and so on will but, click again. But you would worry about it, about, about serial correlation in clicking as either telling you there's an unobservable propensity to click, which is in some sense not being measured. But that's in the user level variable. At the right? user level, yeah. yeah. Or the other opposite, that they are only going to do one click per session, and the fact that they did then predicts they'll never do it again. Yeah, but yeah. that should be in their historical data, right? So you have their past history session. So this is like an outcome prediction. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you should be able to see, oh, this person, whenever they click in the ad, you know, they don't come back and click. So you, you, don't, but you don't, you see why I'm asking. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. You, you think the conditioning variables are going to be good enough predictors that... that it's yeah, so as long as you are able to predict the outcome, yeah. and that outcome prediction is 
correct and it would be as long as the randomization was sufficient then this oh, okay. you should see oh, right, you should right. see this as in the data the, as long as the randomization is sufficient is sufficient yeah yes. and you should have seen instances like this in the data of course if you're going to shrink it across all these variables too much you're not going to have seen it enough to be able to predict it with any accuracy but if, yeah but yeah. you still understand my point that if you thought people behaved a certain way only yeah. one click per session yes. and so on you might not pick it up with this kind of model no we course. have session level variables right we uh, we have a bunch of features which are updated real time in the session oh, oh. yes so that will take care of oh, it oh sorry happen. i didn't clarify that yeah, yeah. okay yeah. Right. uh okay so okay so let me uh talk about the uh, you know, the evaluation of these models, first on RID, which is factual evaluation. Uh, and here we run three different models. One is we have purely contextual information, and then using, of course, all the ad specific features. One, the next model is purely behavioral and ad specific, and the full model is like everything. And you can see that uh, behavioral model gives a much higher uh, improvement, which means just using behavioral information is much better than using contextual information, and of course using both is even better. And uh, so this tells us, at least from an efficiency perspective, behavioral information is more valuable than contextual information, right? And the uh, full model, of course, um, is even better. So from a privacy perspective, even though behavioral information is bad, maybe from user's perspective, it certainly increases matches uh, in the system, so that's good. Uh, I can also I also wanted to briefly show you the counterfactual click-through rate improvement, and this is the um, and we find that there is about about one point you know the click-through rate goes from about 0.6 to 1.1 if you used an efficient targeting policy. But you're right that maybe a better comparison would be like if they had used a deterministic uh, uh, allocation policy with their quality scores. Uh, so you know so, so you see a pretty big improvement in efficiency. Uh, both from a factual and a counterfactual perspective. So, so that's the first part where we, you know, we didn't talk anything about revenues and anything. We were always like, okay, like, can you actually make better matches? Um, uh, and uh, now I'm going to talk about the revenue efficiency trade-off. So, uh, to kind of, uh, this is the Levin and Milgram conjecture in a picture. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, hope to convey the ideas. Uh, so. So let's say there are two uh, users and two advertisers, two impressions, an ad network with two impressions, and did I do something? Uh, um, okay. No, I think it's just one to two or something. No. Mm. Let's see. That usually works. Okay. Okay, that's an easy enough solution. Uh, okay. So let's say there's an ad network with two users and two advertisers, and what I'm showing you here is, so let's say here's this guy who's a, I can actually use the clicker, uh, let's go. Okay, so, no, is that, uh, I don't think it's, it's working. Uh, I just yeah, yeah, I think I'll just use the old fashioned way. So let's say there are two, uh, two users, one's, uh, uh, one's you know, interested in traveling, one's interested in, let's say, health. And if there are two advertisers, let's say an airline company and a gym, now you can see that for the airline company, this user is more valuable, and for the health company, this other user is more valuable. So these represent valuations. But if you use any kind of efficient auction allocation mechanism, you know, like here I'm showing it for a second price auction, you know, this, this first advertiser is going to win this impression, but the platform where they're going to pay this price, so this entire part 
is going to be the advertisers surplus right so the platform is only gaining so much but now think about if they bundle these two impressions and re didn't reveal to the advertiser who was who right the advertisers can't distinguish them right. obviously this top advertiser airline is you know has generally a higher valuation in expectation so they're going to win both the impressions so their allocation is inefficient as you can intuitively see but the platform is going to make more money uh, because the informational rent that is being given away to the advertisers is now lower. Uh, yeah, this is the same impression. This is the same intuition from um, not um, not playing favorites in an auction. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That, yes. Yeah. Yes. So if you uh, yeah, and this is this is also relates to this targeting in some yeah. ways. Yeah. So, so in some ways, so you know, this is kind of the revenue efficiency trade-off. You increased, uh, you in this case, you had higher efficiency but lower revenue for the platform. In the other case, in other ways, the other way around. Yeah, the the, 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 the intuition for this is from government procurement when you have a near monopolist. Yeah. Yes. And you, you're, you're actually it's in your interest to yes, invite yes, a yes. competitor by giving a disadvantage to the monopoly. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I've seen is, some of those papers yeah, as yeah. well. Which yeah. then in, induces yeah. a competitive response yes. from the, right, that's the same. The it's, same a, it's a similar thing, except thing. that here it's on information disclosure. Yeah, it's information yeah, here, but you, what, what is going on here is you want to induce the competitive yeah. response from the Yes, you want, yes, exactly. To, to, yeah, uh, and, yeah, and here you're doing do it through information disclosure, and there you yeah. do it by like yeah. having yeah. higher higher levels of competition here. Yeah. Information, more information is playing uh, anti-competitive uh, role. Yeah, anti -competitive role. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, so that's basically the intuition and what you want to understand is what's the optimal level of targeting from the platform's perspective. So now uh, you have seen a similar matrix before, but now think about this as a valuation matrix, right? Where this is advertised value for each of these impressions. And I'm not going to make any functional form assumptions on this, but even without that, you can actually uh, reconceptualize targeting as um, uh, you know bundles of information, like bundles you can reveal. So within the bundle, I can't tell who is who, but I can tell the average for this bundle, let's say, okay? So, um, and then you can define the relative granularity of targeting levels, where you say that a targeting strategy is more granular than another. If you can, if you can distinguish two impressions within one targeting strategy, they also remain distinguishable in the other targeting strategy. So think of it as like if I do app time level targeting, it's more granular than app level targeting, right? So that's kind of the intuition. Then you can actually show. Um, in a, for a second price auction, but again, for because of revenue equivalence principle, you can show it for pretty much any efficient auction mechanism, it satisfies those properties. You can actually prove, which we do in the paper, that uh, without imposing any functional form assumptions, you can prove that the total surplus or efficiency increases as the granularity of targeting increases. But platform revenues, you can't actually sign them, they can go in either direction. So, so that's really an empirical question then, right? Um, and then uh, we considered four targeting scenarios in the data, uh, you know, which relate to the models and the substantive questions we had. No targeting, contextual targeting, behavioral targeting, and full targeting. And theory, because of this theory results, we know that full targeting is going to have generate the highest surplus or welfare, think of yourself. Mm -hmm. But both contextual and behavioral are going to be somewhere in middle. And I can't even relatively sign them in surplus because they are orthogonal pieces of information. Okay, so it's not like one is subsumed by the other. And, but platform revenues, there is not much that theory can offer here. So <coughs> you had a question. Maybe Talk about how you back out I will talk about it okay. in a moment. Yeah, that's the next slide. 
Um, and this time I didn't do anything back to it. Uh, okay. So okay. So what is the? So how can you do this empirically? So this is the valuation matrix. So now if I want to think about counterfactual targeting strategies and then impose my theory model on that, I need to have know each element of this, right? So this uh, is basically the what's the valuation. Uh, uh, that but what's the advertiser's value for a given impression? So uh, you can think of this as the advertiser's valuation for a click, and this could be heterogeneous across advertisers, right? And there is also the match value. So think of this as a, a CPM auction now, right? Any kind of efficient auction, it's the same whether it's CPM or CPC. So we already have this. Do you guys recall? You already have these match value estimates from the machine learning framework, right? That's but, based on the click through rate. Yeah, and, but we don't have this, which is the advertiser's valuation for the click, right? That's the heterogeneity, right? And there could be heterogeneity there. So we want to estimate this metric, so we need both of these. And then, uh, so that's the challenge. We need to ad estimate advertiser's click valuations from observed data, and we can estimate match valuations for any targeting level. Okay, so how do we estimate uh, click valuation? So uh, for those of you who have worked on structural auctions, probably seen this a lot, but thankfully in this case, uh, you know, uh, there is, as I said, some theory work which on quasi-proportional auctions, and you chose that you can actually, we can get an approximation of the click valuations as twice the bid. Uh, but we also try many other alternative methods which are much more complex. Or essentially, think of this as you, there is an auction mechanism which is being used in the data now, right? And from that, you can back out valuations. And advertisers know that. From that, you can back out valuations. And we are going to use the And valuations are primitives here, right? And assuming that valuations don't change, and there is no reason they should under a different auction mechanism, how much an advertiser values a click, you're going to. So, so there are two primitives here. One's the match valuations and the click valuations. The match valuations came from the outcome prediction, and the click valuations come from the model. The yeah. value that I get from user clicking on my yeah. ad might depend quite a bit on the particular user. And you said that you have these groups of heterogeneous consumers who are lumped together. Very good point. So um, the thing is that in the data, though, we don't see uh, that variation. So I can't really, so think of this as the average valuation. And if anything, we added that in, the result would become even stronger because I would get even more heterogeneity. Well, it depends on which way it goes, right? The person who clicks a lot, it might be like a 13-year-old who doesn't buy anything. They click on everything, so you're... No, but these are independent. I'm not saying that those, the match value has nothing to do with this, right? But this is coming from, not from the click valuation, from the auction mechanism. Yeah, so let's say there's two That's coming two simply from the bidders. There's two different types of consumers who are grouped together uh, in the current uh, system, mm. and um, one of them might have a very high value for you, one might have a very low value yes. for you. You're going to take the mean value yes. apply it to both people. Yes. So if you have that 13-year-old who doesn't click on anything, yes. you're going to assume that when you can target to him and he clicks through with a very high rate, you're going to assume that that's a great match. That's but a half way because I'm going to you give only half the valuation to that, right? That's yeah, still yeah, the yeah. average. But if this person is a... Yeah, so the average would still be right, but if I could impose this, if I could get the actual click valuation, it's only going to increase the heterogeneity in the valuations even more. And you can show that. Okay, so assuming that the bidder is still bidding on that group of consumers, then it will then it'll tell you how the revenue would change. Yes. Is, uh, okay, yeah. so they're not bidding individually. No, okay. yeah. Uh, okay, so I think, I, when do I need to end? 15, okay, I have enough time. 
Yeah, go ahead. So the split telex, the, the PL, the BA, those come from the actual advertiser on this platform? They provide this number? Bit, no, this is the bid. We see the bid. But, you, but you, they bid on the whole category, right? So they, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they this come is, in presumably like once a week, once a day, once yeah, a month. Yeah, and whatever, whatever bid we see for the impression, we can use it. One yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You didn't want to finish? Yeah. And so then that needs to be sort of somehow grounded in reality for them. And just yes. Times I, just, I work for Atlantic for a long time and we sort of did this stuff. And I saw many, there was like a massive dispersion on how logically I agree. would actually fit. And there would be many that would be happy to take a loss because they think they're going to gain market share or just, they've got this budget and they have to spend it. Other yeah. So okay. So the, it's true that in some ways. So the initial version of the paper, we actually to show the revenue efficiency trade-off. You actually the ideal case is homogeneous valuations. Okay. So because even with homogeneous valuations, if this is happening, it's purely your match values which are driving it, and that's what we had initially in the paper. But of course, uh, you know, when it went through the review process, the reviewers were like, "Oh, you need like advertisers would have different valuations," and it is true in principle that they would have different valuations. And then when you impose that, if anything, it's going to increase the heterogeneity in valuations and make the results stronger, which it did. I'm thankful. Uh, but uh, uh, so, so, but when you want to back out valuations in any kind of like a theory model or a structural model like theory taken to data, you are, basic, you are making a fundamental rationality assumption that the bid is reflective of, the bid is a combination of the auction mechanism and their true valuations. If they are using many other things, which I'm sure they are, um, you know, that's... You can at least check that there's like a really strong correlation between the split value from each advertiser and say like CTR? Uh, no, so the thing which is, no, it's not clear there should be, right? Because it's again a function of the auction mechanism. It's right. not, uh, the bid is a fundamentally a primitive, right. it's a, it, yeah. whatever structure you assumed about the auction, uh, you, you can't, you, you, there is no way like to get it. Yes. So this is my last one. Um, just to go back <laughs> to the 13-year-old example. Mm -hmm. uh, you're assuming that the bids don't change, but if I had differential valuations for these yes. two different consumers, and suddenly almost all of the clicks that I'm getting are from these 13-year-old consumers who I think have a very low Yeah, value, then you would change the, change yes. Yeah. And all I was saying is that if you do that, you will only see more heterogeneity. Okay. Because you're now moving your clicks to your bid is going to increase for the people who are actually clicking, and your valuation is high. Right, okay. and the guy who are clicking but not actually buying anything, your bid is going to decrease for them. If anything, it's going to increase the heterogeneity and make the results stronger. Oh, if you can separately. Yes, bid. yeah, if you can separately bid. So in some ways, the strongest case where you can show this is when you assume completely homogeneous valuations, which is what we. And then as you add more heterogeneity from on valuations, that could start driving these results in some ways. Uh, so so that's okay. fundamentally the idea. Okay. So next, uh, okay, how about we use, okay, so next we come to match valuations under targeting. So for any targeting level, think of any targeting level as the way you bundle impressions, right? So what you can think of this is that, the, the fundamental, let me just show you an example. So how do you aggregate them from the machine learning framework? So let's say you have two ads, and now I think of any kind of aggregation strategy. So 
some aggregation strategy. Let's say I aggregate these two, these two, these three. So let's say that I'm doing some kind of app level targeting, and these are the three apps which this happens in. So what we you what this kind of tells you what what you do is in some ways you can't distinguish these impressions within the within this bundle, and you're going to kind of get some kind of an average. Okay, so that's kind of the aggregation strategy. Can, that's how you aggregate match valuations under. That's how you come up with target. That's the uh, match value estimates for counterfactual targeting scenarios. So now we have that you can. So we have we needed two primitives to kind of solve this, right? So one was the mm, uh, match value estimates, and we know how to aggregate them, and the click valuations. And then you can, you know, put you any kind of efficient auction mechanism. I'm not going to walk through this, but basically for each impression, you can determine for this targeting scenario who wins this impression. Uh, you can determine the winner, what's the total surplus for this targeting scenario, and what are the platform's revenues and the advertiser's surplus. I think we can all see that intuitively, just ignore the math, and that's why I like the matrices. Okay, so, <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the counterfactual results. So these are shown in like average uh, improvement in, the, uh, in a currency. So you, know, think you can interpret them relatively. Uh, but you know the actual numbers are you know in the local currency, okay. Um, so as you can see, the first thing which is nice to see is that surplus has a monotonic relationship with targeting granularity. This is the total welfare of the surplus in the system, and um, and that's nice. Uh, and you can also see that behavioral targeting has higher uh, you know surplus than contextual, but of course full has the highest. But if you look at uh, platform revenues or the ad networks revenues, you can say that it's actually maximized under the contextual targeting. Uh, anytime they start using behavioral information, uh, interestingly, the platform revenues don't change much from uh, you know, behavioral to full. Uh, so whatever, even going from here to here, whatever extra value is being created, it's going to the advertisers. And you can see that advertisers surplus actually is the highest when there is more information. So now they're able to place all these like uh, targeted bits and um, and you know make you know so all the value creation when you do more targeting after a certain point is being appropriated by the advertisers. Um, so to some extent, it says that platform has some incentive to preserve privacy, and uh, that's good. Uh, so the goal of this exercise is not so much to say that context, the platform should engage in contextual targeting, rather to kind of tease out the incentives of the different players, and also to say that from the platform's perspective, if they want to actually think about revenue, they should not be thinking about efficiency maximization, which a lot of platforms do, to rather think about revenue maximization. And then there are many mechanisms, I'm sure, and they can put in place to actually extract back some of this revenue, right? For instance, platforms, some of the platforms are already starting to do that. If they can actually provide some information on what what the click valuations or the match valuations are as a service and extract back some of the revenue, then they can get that. But if you are just going to maximize efficiency without thinking about extracting that surplus back, you're going to be worse off. So can I, can I mark? So is it just a byproduct of the, this sample of data, or do you think there's generality to it that most of the surplus uh, did not require contextual or behavioral targeting? That that, uh, that you generate quite a lot of value, you know, in the absence of, and, and then the incremental part has a percentage of what was already there. As it turns out, for 
I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good question, actually. And this is also something we thought about, because if you look at much of the theory literature in this area, they have very strong functional form assumptions on valuations, and they have these, like, really fact tales which we don't see in the data. And the results on improvement, like, I think they are, like, the uh, Hamel and McAfee paper and so on, for instance, the results in theory are, like, so strong in terms of how much, oh, like, you're going to die. It's, like, a really bad inverted U-shaped curve. Uh, But in the data, we don't actually see that so i mean in the revenue efficiency trade-off exists but it's not it's not uh, so, so, so another way to ask the same question mm-hmm. is uh, i think a bit contextual advertising here as you know the person is near the store because <laughs> yes. that's really what you're picking up you're picking or up your off. person is in this app at this time of at the day at this time of day yeah and so, but i like the location because mm-hmm. that's a real that's yeah a, you, you know you so you Row the right ad right at them. Yeah. Right in there, right next to the yeah. uh, night, right in there next to the target. Ooh, mm. That's a good pun mm. uh, in this context. Mm. Uh, uh, this, uh, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, yeah. So, uh, 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 oh, God, you didn't even get it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They're laughing now. <laughs> but the point is, it doesn't generate very much. Yeah. yeah. Because if you think about it, the click-through rate improvement still, right, in the be- in the most efficient states, right, yeah. it went from 0.66 to 1 point something. Oh, it's because we're, it, it's yeah. still so bad. It's still so low. Yeah. Oh, that's why it's... Yeah, same. so how much ever you improve, if I could somehow improve... Clicks by like oh, that, 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 by like five hundred percent. Then I would. Uh, I mean, there's still sense. a bunch of people clicking. I target them. I mean, it's still I think about like right. three or four. I forget the exact percentage. I mean, it's if you so you need the system to be really large to see the improvements. Right, 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 right. Okay, yeah. no, that, that's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, I guess I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how to think about this. Um, keeping in mind the fact that advertisers have choices. Mm-hmm. So they could take their business elsewhere. So I guess I, I'm trying to sort of zoom out and think yeah. about these results, but in that yeah. context. So that's a good question. So in some ways we were lucky because we were working with like pretty much a monopolist, like they had 85% of the market share. Mm-hmm. If they actually could go somewhere else with this advertising budget to like a different app, this value creation could then be, you could say that you're giving away some of this value to the advertisers because like you're trying to generate loyalty or something mm-hmm. and then that helps. Or you could make it more explicit mechanism where, you know, if you have it, um, if you have it as a service where they get this information and then they know this value is coming from it, yes. So so the goal is not so much to s- tell the platform exactly what to do, but to rather say that this exists and you want to be aware of it. And, uh, you know, you depending on the context, you might want to think about it's almost like a mechanism design question. Mm-hmm. Do you want to extract the surplus? Do you how do you do it? Uh, yeah. And so on. Okay, so briefly about advertiser surplus. Um, so here we actually, you know, one of the things you saw that advertiser surplus are in, is increasing on average, but it's not always the case. So what I do, I'm showing you here, is that uh, going uh, from, let's say, behavioral to full, 23, you know, advertisers out of 37 benefit, but going from full to behavioral, which is less, right? Actually, about 14 advertise, uh, advertisers benefit. So it's not that all advertisers have the exact same preferences in terms of how it's the optimal level of targeting. <laughs> and I'll just give you, because I actually don't know the identity of the advertisers, it's very hard for me to 
fully reason why a specific advertisement benefits and doesn't. But let me just give you an example of like, you know, why, uh, like between contextual and behavioral. So if you have an advertiser, let's say you have a contextual advertising regime, and I am a nutritional supplement ad, and I advertise in a fitness or a health app, obviously no one maybe else wants to advertise in this, and I get these things at like a low enough price. But now let's say I start allowing for behavioral targeting. Maybe there are people in there, you know, now are suddenly valuable to a bunch of other advertisers, which was not visible to them before, right? Maybe these are people who are spending a lot of money on other apps, and suddenly they become valuable. And to me, uh, as an individual advertiser, I'm suddenly competing with those people for these users. And that's why it's not like a uniform result where each single advertiser benefits equally. And it was kind of nice because, again, we tend to think of the advertising industry as like one big, like, group with exactly the same incentives and it turns out it's not always the case there is heterogeneity in how advertisers which what regimes kind of advertisers prefer okay so uh, to that was pretty much what i had to say to uh, conclude very briefly uh, the paper tries to um, kind of has two types of contributions, if you might call it that. On the methodological front, what we're proposing is like a scalable machine learning framework for targeting that is actually uh, compatible with counterfactual analysis in a competitive environment, right? Uh, so you can think about all these targeting counterfactuals. And from a substantive perspective, we kind of do this extensive comparison of behavioral and contextual targeting, both in factual and counterfactual competitive settings. And uh, there are some implications from a managerial perspective, we find that there is this non-monotonic relationship between revenue and targeting granularity. And from a policy perspective, you know, there is some evidence at least to show that you know, uh, ad networks have some incentives to self-regulate and advertisers' incentives on what's the optimal level of targeting. You know, there is some heterogeneity. And that's uh, pretty much it. Thank you so much. <laughs>